Evening all, welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things English football pyramid. On today's episode, we'll take a look at the weekend's Premier League action, where Aston Villa beat Arsenal 1-0 and Tottenham took apart a tired Newcastle 4-1. We'll also look ahead to some crunch midweek Champs League games for Man United and Newcastle. We'll review the key games from the EFL, including Premier Pod Cup holders Southampton, who were pegged back by a 96-minute equaliser at Watford, but the main thing is retain the cup. And we'll finish up with Lauro, who dissected Joe with 2-2 draw at Dartford. I'm your host, Alex Murphy, and once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Laurie, come to you. Aston Villa 1, Arsenal 0. We said before the Arsenal and Man City games, if they get six points from them, we'd talk about them in a title race. Uh, they've now done both. Six points from six against those two sides, just a bit on Aston Villa on the whole, but now their actual title credentials. Yeah, well, congratulations to Aston Villa, because <clears throat> I think when we spoke last week about the fixtures they had coming up against Manchester City and Arsenal, and if they could win them or get through them unscathed, then they'd be in the title pitch. I don't think any of us actually believe they'd probably get through both of those with six points, particularly six points with two clean sheets as well. So what they're doing there is amazing. They've got that raucous atmosphere, and I think it sort of shone through in the, the goal they scored against Arsenal. I thought, as soon as it was scored, I thought that's one of the goals of the season in terms of attack to defence, uh, defence to attack through the lines and just using that kind of atmosphere and the pace and the kind of tempo that's within the team at the moment just to blow the team away. So I know that we need to be talking positively about Aston Villa. Being two points off the top of the table and above Man City after 16 games is phenomenal. That game in isolation, I thought they were quite fortunate to come out of the win in the end. I thought, I think I predicted one all last week and I actually think that was a one all game. Other than probably the first 25, half an hour, Arsenal really grew into that game and they missed some guilt-edged chances. And I, I thought on another day, um, they probably would have got something out of the game. So I actually don't think Arteta will be too disheartened by the performance. Obviously, he would have liked to come away with a result um, and, and, and having ended Aston Villa's winning streak at home, which didn't happen. However... It wasn't like the City game where Aston Villa blew them away. I, I did think that Arsenal probably will think themselves a little bit unlucky not to come out with something. I thought a couple of the substitutions were a bit strange. I thought they were really struggling with Martinelli on the left-hand side and taking him off almost played into Villa's hands a little bit and it petered out towards the end. Obviously, he got a little bit lucky with the Havertz goal being disallowed, albeit by the letter of the law, it was handball. So... Look, fantastic. Aston Villa, two points off top, 15 or 16 wins in a row, whatever it is at home now. However, I think they'll be happy to get out of that one with three points and move on to the next game, whatever that is. Yeah, and Tomo, Laurie touched on there about um, felt like a one-all game and Arsenal missed some guilt-head chances. Do you think this comes back to Arsenal just not having that number nine, the 25-goal-a-season man who can win them a league? Maybe. Maybe. They do. I, I, I do think that in January they will look to to strengthen in that area, whether it be, I think even Tony would be a perfect um, sign-in. You just don't know how much he'll cost, maybe 70, 80 million. But um, just, yeah, it just it just wasn't their day, really. Sometimes that happens. I thought they were the better team. I agree with Lauro. And I, but when like the G, like the Gabriel Jesus penalty incident, um, I don't personally think that was a penalty. I thought he went down way too easily. Um but sometimes you get given those ones. The Kai Havertz goal as well. I also think that was that was a correct decision because it did touch his hand. But sometimes you kind of get those ones as well. So, um, just one of those one of those sort of days in the office where nothing goes well for you really. Um, even though they did play quite well, 
Um, Odegaard is probably the biggest culprit in terms of the missed chances. Um, what I want to ask you boys, actually, because I was watching the post-match interview and I've seen a couple of his like press conference clips after the game as well. And Arteta, he's got to be the most unlikable manager of all time, hasn't he? Like he just says the words clear and obvious about a thousand times in every single interview after the game. And I'm just thinking, look, Mikel, you were probably on the wrong side of a couple of the little decisions, but that none of them were clear and obvious. Not one of them. So, and I was just think like sort of like thinking back to every single time they they lose a game, he comes out and has an absolute sort of a meltdown, if you will. And I felt like I felt like that again today, like um, on uh, Saturday. He's just such an unlikable bloke, and he's just, I suppose it's almost a good thing in a way because he's such a bad loser. But yeah, it was just one of those games for Arsenal, um, but wouldn't be too worried because the performance was good. By the way, I wasn't saying um, Arsenal not being able to put their chances away was a damning indiction of their title chances because of that number nine. Like we said at the start of the season, I still feel that when they play Jesus, he brings in those other players and they'll get enough goals from them. They're definitely, for me, they're still title favourites. It just wasn't their day. Like you said, Odegaard missed, I think, two guilt-edged chances. Um, the reason they didn't come away with anything was because of those missed chances, but not because of the number nine. When Jesus plays, it's good, because he can play that kind of Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard-inducing role, if you like. Um, it just didn't happen at the weekend. And you're right about Arteta. He is quite unlikable, but like, I really dislike Pep. So, you know, if that's anything to go by, then not being likeable as a manager is probably a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, my mind's Jurgen Klopp and similar vein, isn't it? It's that, like, world against us, lose a game, and it's like, you know, you've been absolutely shafted every time. There's never really too much. It's just we've been beaten by a better side, and those three have probably got in common the fact that they're serial winners. And, well, Arteta, not so much the manager yet, but certainly looking to be. Um, the same as those guys. So maybe that's the mould you need to be very, very successful at the top. Um, so they've both got midweek action uh, in Europe. Arsenal already wrapped up their Champions League group. They go away to PSV. Villa away in Bosnia on Thursday. So be interested to see what that does for them on Sunday. Uh, they go away to Brentford at two o'clock. So uh, be interested to see what, what Emery does with the team. They're away in Bosnia because, uh, say, they'll they're really starting to be thinking about being in and around the top at Christmas. Um, so Aston Villa, obviously amazing being an Aston Villa fan at the moment. A team that is not amazing to be a fan of at the minute, Tombo, Manchester United. Uh, we've spoken through a fair few lows on the podcast since we've started it up. Would you say Saturday evening was the lowest feeling yet of the season? Uh, I don't know. Well, in a way, yeah, just because... But there wasn't nothing surprising about the result or the performance. Do you know what I mean? We've seen that sort of level of intensity and of like a lot this season from United and you watch the highlights and it's, it's so piss poor. And just before we come on to how good Bournemouth were, because obviously they were very good and they deserved um, all the plaudits they can get. But what I just wanted to, I just think that Bruno Fernandes, right. He epitomizes everything that is going on at Man United right now. And you watch the, the, the opener for Bournemouth where he just lazily plays a ball into McTominay and McTominay obviously doesn't look sharp enough and gets, um, 
intercepted. I think it's by Lewis Cook, who does really well to assist Solanke's opener. But yeah, Bruno, he, epit- he epitomises everything about Man United. He's the captain of Man United. And when he's playing well, and he is a really good player, um, but he's an individual player, isn't he? In my eyes, anyway. And he, he, he quite clearly only plays for himself. Uh, and when things aren't going well, he moans at the referee. He moans at his players, uh, his teammates. Um, he seems to shy away from the battle a little bit. He doesn't really dig deep. He, even on, on Saturday, I know Richard Keyes even said that he, he got the book in on purpose just so he'd miss the Anfield trip next week. And when that sort of, when that level of professionalism is getting questions about your captain, then then you're in a whole heap of trouble, really. Um, but look, there was nothing surprising about about the result. It was a, a surprising thing. They only won 3-0. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They were just much better than us. Laurie, let, let's touch on Bournemouth because we, we always bang on about United and their shortcomings. But Bournemouth are siding good form. We touched on last pod how they'd not uh, lost in their last four Premier League games. Maybe didn't predict 3-0. Uh, a win Man United, but um, I know you guys definitely hadn't ruled them out picking something up in the previous pod. No, and I probably owe um, Iriola an apology because one thing I definitely did get wrong is I didn't see this purple patch coming for them. I thought on paper their squad looks a lot weaker than a lot of the sides in the league, and I just thought that manager would get found out coming and deputising in the in the Premier League and trying to keep a ball on the side of float who had a very good manager in Gary O'Neill last season and was unlucky to be sacked. However, you can't argue with their form at the moment and going away to Man United and winning 3-0, almost 4-0 with the disallowed goal later on, I think, as well, um, sort of epitomises what they're about at the minute. You've touched on Dominic Solanke before. He's spearheading the attack really well and he is amongst those names at the top of the goal-scoring charts at the moment and may well be linked with, with other clubs. And look, they're level with Chelsea. In the league, level with teams like Brentford, who always get lots of plaudits. They're not far behind the likes of Brighton and West Ham. So, Bournemouth are doing really good things for Bournemouth at the moment. Obviously, for Man United, it's disappointing to have a team like... It always feels worse when it's a team like Bournemouth. If you had lost to Chelsea in the week and then beat Bournemouth yesterday, it probably wouldn't be as down in the dumps. But then again, you've been fairly negative all season. So, um, other than you know my outlook, which is that Eric Ten Hag isn't the the right man to take the club forward. I'm not quite sure what to suggest to turn the tide there for you, to be honest. Uh, and they, there's two um, trails of thought on Ten Hag, isn't there? there? There's people who think that he's just not up to it as a Man United manager or a manager that Man United should aspire to have. And therefore, United are better off cutting their losses and sacking him and starting the search again for a new manager. The other school of thought, Tomo, is that this is the fifth, sixth time that this will happen post-Fergie and you've still got some of the same players in there. And we've actually had one of the listeners reach out to us and ask, um, I don't know if you've seen Stephen Bartlett's post from today, Tomo? No, what's he said? Basically, he said that what he would do uh, as a CEO would be give Ten Hag a three-year contract now to send a message to those players that he's going nowhere, Ten Hag, and that if those guys are going to down tools and look to get him sacked, that's not going to work in the hope that that would potentially, I don't know, either smoke out the players to leave who are like that or maybe get them going again. So uh, there is that trail of thought that Man United just can't keep rinsing and repeating with sacking managers and keeping those players. So just kind of where, if Laurie's more on the side of Ten Hag's not up to it, where where are you with it? Well, I don't don't think Eric Ten Hag's um, 
this season, he's not been good enough, to be fair. He's made a lot of mistakes and a couple of sort of worrying signs were calling out Sancho in publicly and he and et cetera, et cetera. Even if Sancho probably deserved the public um, bollocking, you probably, like, when you start doing that as a manager, it's sort of that signs that things aren't going quite your way. Um, but I, I, I agree with Stephen Bartlett. Not I wouldn't give Eric Ten Hag a new contract as a sign of, like we're keeping you and we're backing you, etc. But there's no there's no point in sacking Ten Hag because it solves nothing, and the only thing that will solve. Well, there's a lot of things that need to be solved, but one of the main things is, is sort of just player turnover. Players like Martial who need to go, um, just sort out the recruitment. But like none of these issues will get dealt with until Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes in and brings his own sort of um, recruitment team in and all of that sort of stuff. So there's no point in sacking Ten Hag now because who are you going to get like for a couple of months until Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes in? It's just, you almost just got to ride this season out a little bit or until at least um, Sir Jim comes in. I've seen it. Little... My, my view... Go on, go on Laurie, you go, mate. I was just going to say, my view on the Stephen Bartlett thing is I just think it's a little bit, he's trying to throw something out that no one else has said. It would be all right giving a three-year contract if contracts in football meant anything, but you could give him a three-year contract and the players know if they're crap, it'll still be gone by March, yeah. or there's still the chance of that happening. What I personally think Man United need is an inspiring leader that's at least going to show some emotion and going to drive everything forward and upwards. Um on and off the pitch at Manchester United because it's just been so dull. Like, you look at Eric Tang Hag and he looks like he's about to fall asleep. Even when we were at the ground, he just... You know, I haven't seen him change his expression the whole time that he's been there. And that just doesn't go hand in hand with a club that isn't being ran particularly well at the moment. I know Ratcliffe's going to come in, but when you look... I understand that you can't keep changing the manager and there's there's sort of bigger picture issues at play that come into account when you're talking about Man United's form over the last 10 years or whatever. But that doesn't mean to say that the manager is the right one at the moment. I actually think that Eric Hag has proved to be a poor acquisition. And if you, for me, my next manager, if I was United, I'd go and get Roberto De Zerbi from Brighton. Because, I mean, look at the other day when they beat Forrest away and they just sprinted over towards the fans. He's He's Mardi in the interviews. He doesn't want to give anything away. He wants to dispute everything. He's passionate on the touchline. The players love him. At least if you've got someone like that, a character on the sidelines, which you probably haven't had since Jose Mourinho, and even he was quite a pragmatic, negative-style manager anyway, that might be something that just starts to catalyse a little bit more positivity and forward thinking at Man United. Because like I said with Ange Postacoglu, for example, at Tottenham, it's not just the players you manage. You manage up as well. And you sort of inspire and you push the people that are above you in the hierarchy, whether that's Jim Ratcliffe or the Glazers or whoever the decision makers are at Man United. So I think someone like that, a little fireball coming into the club, would be exactly what Man United need. And then give him the time. Don't waste it on Eric Ten Hag, because I can tell you now, remember I said this, Eric Ten Hag is not the one. Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting... Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, like situation at the minute where I think a few weeks ago it was like oh you can't sack Tan Hag because you'll just be doing the same thing as we've always done and we need to trust him and trust you know look what he did last season um with finishing in the top four getting Champions League football getting to the FA Cup final winning the League Cup but the regression this season seems absolutely massive to me um and that's really really concerning and the fact that he seems to fall out with a lot of players a lot of different players um 
who are, have been big money signings for United, like Sancho and Varane, to name two. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. The one thing I would say is Man United's outlook for the rest of the week is they've got uh, Bayern Munich tomorrow where they need to win to stay in any form of Europe. Uh, to stay in the Champions League, they need to win and then Galatasaray and Copenhagen draw. So that's really unlikely, but they've got to win, which is unlikely anyway to stay in any form of Europe. Then they go to Anfield on the weekend, which is just... Well, he's not won a big side away, has he yet? Ten Hag in charge of Man United last year was the 7-0 uh, there. So I really think that we could be on Monday's podcast next week having a serious conversation about whether that, that's the end for him. But we will see. Um, from one maybe manager that you don't like so much, Den Laro, to one that you very much do, Tottenham 4, Newcastle 1. Uh much needed three points for Big Ange and Spurs and nice for them as well that Rich Arlison grabbed the brace. Yeah, I thought they were superb. Absolutely scintillating. I could have stayed there. It was one of those games where the final whistle came and you just think, oh, I could have watched that for hours. They were spellbinding. Absolutely fantastic. This is the Spurs still without a couple of key players, still without their best player of all time left in the summer, off the back of a really uh, tumultuous kind of run a form and I did say or we have all said to be fair they've still been playing well and they've been a little bit, un bit unlucky on at times to have that one point out of the last 15 which was the case before Sunday um, and to beat a team like Newcastle so convincingly and it could have been more um, I think is only testament to the job that Ants Postacoglu is doing there and but the players as well fair play to them buying into everything and it, you know that's another place that seems lively and up for it every time they have a home game at the minute but they just play like that all the time they, I always from I always say it about like Bielsa when Leeds Cup, they just have a, that philosophy that they go with and the manager's got the courage of the convictions and he'll ride out. Yesterday, Gary Neville was absolutely wax lyrical about Tottenham and how admirable it is that they just continue playing a certain way. It's very easy when they lose a game to say how naive it is. But if you've got, like I say, the courage in what you're, the convictions in what you're doing to carry on doing it. The team will buy into it. They'll believe in it. And when they get results like that against Newcastle, it will snowball into better and better. And hopefully they're out the other side now of that kind of run of form. And they're only three points behind City and they can go again. And like I think they said in commentary um, yesterday, when they do get Madison and Bam Bean back, they could finish the season really, really strongly and still not in European football like everyone else. So, uh, good things ahead for Spurs, I think. And obviously, you'll come on to Newcastle, I'm sure, but did look tired. Yeah, Tommy, we'll go to Newcastle. So they've got AC Milan at home on Wednesday in a massive uh, Champs League game for them. But again, watch that game and just thought, same start in 11, look absolutely exhausted. Callum Wilson and um, Longstaff came on, so maybe starting to see light through the end of the tunnel, but looks like a real tricky period at the minute for Freddie Howe. Yeah, and we could. Yeah, definitely. They, they look. They do look tired physically, but I don't think we've mentioned that. Like you say, they 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 start the same team every week, so it's not just the physical um, exertion they have to go through, but it seems like they're quite mentally knackered as well. If you know what I mean, and emotionally. And Kieran Trippier is a big, um, I would say, a big example of that. He's been one of their best players since he signed at the club. He's been brilliant. Their captain. Um, leads by example, but just the last couple of the games, he's making some errors that you just wouldn't normally see him make. And it's it might not just be because he's knackered in terms of obviously playing all the time, but he does seem a little bit exhausted, just like mentally, if you if you know what I mean. And um, yeah, Sonny had him on toast, really, didn't he? Um, 
And uh, look, yeah, Tottenham are probably the worst team you can come up against when you're when you're on your last legs because Tottenham just keep coming and they're just so intense with their pressing. And from the first minute to the last minute, they don't ever let off, no matter the scoreline. Um, so yeah, it was impressive. And actually, I, don't, I I hate to always bring things back to Man United, but it's really hard to stick up for Eric Ten Hag. Um, when he's offering up some of the football he's offering up after nearly 18 months in charge. And Ange Postacoglu's gone into Tottenham and they were an absolute shit show last year under Conte. Like, an absolute shit show. And within six months, he's made them this free-flowing, beautiful attacking football, um, beautiful attacking football team. And, okay, they've come on the wrong side of results lately, but they always have a a style of play, a philosophy, something you can get behind and something that you can believe in as a fan. So, yeah, look, it was a great result for Tottenham and one that I I think was was pretty expected considering how knackered Newcastle are. And I do worry for them against Milan, to be honest. Um, but it's at St. James's Park, isn't it? So maybe that energy of the crowd can carry them through, hopefully, because you'd like to see English teams do well in Europe. Indeed, yeah, and um, I'm here's hoping that they do uh, they do get something against Milan, and hopefully it's starting to get some bodies back now. Uh, as I said, like Wilson and Longstaff, which might just kind of breathe a new bit of life into Newcastle. They got some big games coming up in uh, in cup competitions, so yeah. Um, the team that now sit top of the Premier League, and I think you know for the last few pods or or certainly ones previous, who we speaking about their kind of under the radar, sneakily good start. We're now sixteen games in, and Liverpool are top. Um, Tomo one two one at Palace, potentially a bit lucky though. Um, on the day, Palace were were good value, and Liverpool getting the rub of the green with VAR decisions. Yeah. Um, well, they definitely got the rub of the green. I don't know if uh, with the AU red card, obviously, that that second booking was an absolute shit show. And an, it was a joke, to be honest. But at the end of the day, referees make mistakes. No problem with that. Sometimes you come on the wrong end of them. The, the issue I had with the, the officials and, the, and the, the VAR during the game was they intervened twice. One for the, the penalty in the first half for Crystal Palace, where... Um, I think it was Will Hughes who um, he did he tackle um, Gravenberg or, or Endo? That was it. It was Endo. Endo, yeah. And then then they got the penalty. And okay, like the referee basically, it takes about three minutes to come to the decision, and they they've watched about a hundred replays. And for me, if you take three minutes and have to watch a hundred replays for any decision, it's not a clear and obvious error. And therefore, you should stick with the on-field decision. And the same thing happened with the Palace penalty in the second half, where, okay, on both occasions, the officials probably got the decision right, but they're ruining the fan experience because they're completely re-refereeing games. And, okay, it probably was a penalty in the second half, but but it took another three minutes to have a look. And they, they looked at every angle, and it's just like... It just ru- completely ruins the experience watching the game on the TV, let alone watching the game as a fan in a stadium when you don't know exactly what they're watching, which those are the fans I feel sorry for the most, because at least when we're watching it on TV, it's like, well, you can see the replays, etc. Um, but yeah, they got away with one, didn't they, Liverpool? Um, but that's the, that's the type of 
game you need to win if you have any aspirations of winning the title. And they've they've gone. We, well, I mean, we speak about them every week, but they've gone so far under the radar this year because they they seem to go one nil down in every game and then just eventually win it by one. But the top of the league now, it's insane. Yeah, with a very favourable fixture for them next Sunday, uh, Man United at home. So, they, yeah, they're probably going to be top of Christmas. I think the 23rd of yeah, 23rd of December, there's the uh, massive one against Arsenal. Laurie, just very quickly on Palace, though, another, another loss for them, not in particularly good form. I saw Roy Hodgson said after the game how he's not going to sort of look back fondly and miss games like that in football with VAR now, and it's kind of ruined in football for him. He almost looked a bit, to me, like resigned to to retirement almost a bit like almost wants out of it a bit yeah I think he, he was like that at Watford when Watford brought him in to try and save them a couple of years ago like once he knew it was like uh, the magic I haven't got the manager bounce here and it's not happening he was very just like oh good luck to Watford like from about 10 games out he was like good luck to Watford in the championship this is what they'll need to do to rebuild and when he came into Palace, at first it was a stopgap, but then they gave him that year's contract. And Simon Jordan, who's obviously got an affinity with the club, always describes it as lazy. You're sort of pushing it down the block because you know Roy Hodgson's about 120 years old. So he's only going to be there for one or two seasons, the absolute max anyway. Um, maybe he's just there until a manager becomes available. I think they've been linked with Steve Cooper before, who um, I think Parrish is the chairman there fancies, which is fair enough. But yeah, I, very much in his armchair, I think, Roy Hodgson. He, they even did an interview with him before the game and they said, do you still feel the same pressure? And he said he'd be lying if he said he did feel the same pressure that he used to. He just feels pressure for the people around him. And that's not the same. So it's all very well smiling at the VAR decisions after the game, saying, well, I'm not sure about that. But, you know, Palace have got to be careful because if one of the three promoted teams are to stay up, Everton are in really good form. They're one of the clubs that people are probably looking at to think, they could end up on a bit of a, a downward spiral and are possibly the team that everyone's looking to catch, particularly with their injury record. Eze and Elise quite often out. They don't have Zaha anymore. So it could be quite worrying times. So they might pull the trigger, though, I think, and change the management soon. But just very quickly on Liverpool, another example, like Klopp, you see, you're right, went 1-0 down. He just kept changing things until it worked. Like he put Trent into midfield at halftime. He, I think on the 73rd minute, he made he'd made four changes. Two of them came in the 73rd minute. Then Salah got the goal and they just kept playing and playing and playing. And then eventually Harvey Elliott, someone that he sort of sticks by off a player coming off the bench quite often scored a really, really good goal um, and won them the game. So uh, masterclass again, 12.30 kickoff, Liverpool come from behind. Manager making big decisions during the game to affect the outcome and the top of the league without really seeming to break sweat so far so at least it makes it a really good title race as we've already said three or four teams at least in it maybe five with Spurs and uh, yeah let's see who's top of Christmas sounds like it could be Liverpool Can I just quickly stick up for Palace and um, Hodgson because actually I thought they were unbelievable on Saturday and they were the much better team they defended brilliantly and then and you you said that Klopp kept changing it to um he kept changing it because nothing was working. And actually the thing that changed the game was the red card. So, and it complete, and, and okay, Palace probably, their heads went down a little bit after coming on the, the wrong side of that decision, which was shocking. We spoke about that. Um, but I'm not sure if it was a clock masterclass or whether it was just actually the referee sort of gave them one, if you know what I mean. 
Yeah, I, I just I think it's all very well sticking up for Palace, but I think if you're going to go into Liverpool at home and play that well and want credit afterwards, it, you put yourself in a position when the six games previous, five of them, they lost to Luton, they lost to Everton, they lost to Bournemouth, and they drew with West Ham. So if you're going to go for a run of results like that, it doesn't suggest they've been in fantastic form and they're firing on all cylinders. And we know that clubs seem to be able to raise their performances against these big sides. The point was... Klopp made lots of changes and kept changing it and they won it late. So when you look at it just on paper, it worked. And they're top of the league. So again, over the bigger picture, it looks like it's working more often than not for him. I agree, Palace were quite good on Saturday, but it's not good enough to just do it against the big teams. Roy's got to be getting up, getting them up for Luton away and fucking Burnley at home or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So I can see that managerial change coming sooner rather than later. And it'll probably be one where we just hear that Roy Hodgson's left the club. They won't come out and say they've sacked him, will they? They'll let him sort of go out with a bit of dignity and say that he's resigned. But um, sooner rather than later for me, because someone needs to be that club that those three promoter teams have got uh, a carrot to catch. I don't think it's ever happened, has it, before, where they all go down? So no, if someone's going to be the team to drop into it, I reckon Palace could be it. Yeah, and then long term for them, if they then get raided for like Eze, Elise, Decore, some of their players that are playing well, they could be in for a bit of a uh, a stint down in the championship. Um, but yeah, hopefully they manage to turn it around. Just a final point on the managers that I'll make is that I think it's really, we've touched on Arteta, unlikable, Klopp, unlikable, Pep, unlikable, because they rub people who aren't fans of them up the, uh, up the wrong way. But the, they're so vocal and loud about these decisions because it's such fine margins in football that you have these percent, these small percentages, gains that you might get from that. It only takes the ref to be a bit more like, do I want to piss off here, Jurgen Klopp or Roy Hodgson, like sleepy Roy a little bit like after the game, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not really enjoying football like this. You know, it makes it hard to watch and I won't miss that side of it versus a visibly riled up, angry, passionate Jurgen Klopp. It might be it doesn't come into it and referees don't think like that, but I fancy that they do a little bit. And I do think that a really strong character like that can just sometimes over the course of a season, you get one or two decisions go your way, which can be massive. Um, we touched on quite a while ago now Jurgen Klopp never wanted that game replayed against Tottenham it was never going to be replayed but what he has made sure is that there'll be a few decisions that maybe might have gone against Liverpool that now will go their way throughout the season so uh, yeah I just sometimes think that's why managers are like that uh, a team banging form you touched on Laura Everton 2 Chelsea nil. Uh, three in a row now for Everton. Uh, I think since the points deduction, they've either won all their games or the United game might have been just after it. And obviously that was a bit of a uh, a freak result. Everton played well, but Garnacho scored the goal. But Sean Dyche got them going now. Yeah, he has. And he's, he's sort of got them into a mould that you associate with Sean Dyche football teams, which are difficult to play against. And then are very good at utilising their wide players and their forward players into getting points out of games. I must say Dwight McNeil is just in scintillating form at the moment. He looks like a completely different player. It looks like he can only play for Sean Dyche because obviously he sort of built his name at Burnley 
under the manager before and didn't really do it under Frank Lampard, did he? But looks really, really good now and just a, a massive threat every game. We've spoken about DeCorey having a bit more licence now and a little less pressure on him with the focal point being Calvert-Lewin and Jack Harrison's been a good addition as well. So I think Tomo touched on their defensive unit being the foundation last week and I agree that partnership of Tarkowski and Brampweight is fantastic. Myelenko's turned into a really good Premier League fullback now as well. Um, but going forward and scoring goals and being able to make those games wins instead of coming away with a point has been a massive factor for them. And beating Newcastle and Chelsea in, in one week um, is no mean feat. So I think fantastic, Sean Dice. Everton fans must be really, really happy. And if they didn't have that 10-point deduction, they'd be in the top half now. And Everton haven't really been a top half side for probably four or five, six years now. So good times. And it looks like they'll be a million miles away from relegation by early next year, doesn't it? Yeah. And Tom, if Everton are in good form, one side that really aren't are Chelsea. Um, feels a little bit like Man United, if honest, almost like well, what comes good of sacking another manager with the set of players they've got? Just a bit from you on Poch's future. Well, I think Poch is basically their only positive. I really rate him. And I I think um, he's coming to a club that's in disarray. The ownership sort of... what they, they think they can come in and change how football's run and given all these long contracts and it just doesn't work like that. And um, a sign of how bad they are, let's be honest, right? They've spent over a, a billion quid and Poch after the game was asking for more signings. And it's like, fuck me. Like you, That is not how to solve that issue. But they are terrible. They are terrible going forward. They had like 70, 72% possession against Everton, but never looked like scoring. Never, you never really felt like Everton were in danger or anything like that. Um, they're so feeble and they're just... Yeah, they're 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 a shambles, really, and probably the only reason why they're not getting as much sort of column inches and slagging off on the media and on Talksport etc. is because Man United are doing so badly as well. And obviously, we all know um, everyone likes talking about Man United for the clicks etc. But yeah, just having a look now, and Chelsea have won thirty nine points from thirty nine Premier League games in two thousand and twenty three. That's like relegation form. It's, it's yeah. You, you you started this or that question asking me about Poch's future, and look, there does become there does come a point where a manager has to start showing that he can affect games or affect the players. But um, I just wouldn't blame him. It just feels like the everything um, above him has been a shambles really since um, Abramovich has left. I agree, and Poch has got a lot more credit in the bank in terms of tangible Premier League success. We all know he's a good manager. We've seen him very do very good jobs at Southampton and Tottenham. Um, and I think because Chelsea as well, I know they're a team that we expect big things of, like Man United, but if you want to draw that comparison, Chelsea did still win the Premier League in 2017, which is relatively recent. And they also won the Champions League in 2020 or 2021, I think. So their fans have had success recently. It's not like they've had this big sort of 10-year gulf where they went from being the biggest side in the world to winning absolutely nothing in terms of Premier Leagues and Champions League. So that's there's probably a little bit more time um, in the heads of the Chelsea fans because they've they've 
had that success and experienced it much more recently. And I think they've just got a manager who's proven it at a higher level and in the Premier League, obviously, whereas Eric Tannehag hasn't. So I don't think Poch is the problem there as well. I agree there will come a time where that you have to change it. But that actually might be a case where you can change the manager as many times as you want because they have got an ownership model which is seems to be completely bullish and completely different to what we've seen before in terms of the way the finances are distributed and the way the players are brought in. Um, time will tell on that. But if you're top Bowley sat there at the moment, I wouldn't be looking at the, that big picture thinking Poch is the thing we need to change. It's probably the kind of recruitment strategy and the players that they're bringing in and the um, team ethos, if you like. Yeah, I, I wonder from a Poch point of view as well, we always think about um, managers like getting sacked as if they'd always be looking over their shoulder. I do sometimes wonder, is Poch starting to think, do I even want to be Chelsea manager? Do I want to work with these set of players? Do I want to try and get them going? Do I constantly want to sit in front of the media pre-match and post-match being like, oh, what's up with this group? What's happened to Chelsea? That sort of thing. I just want to say, like, it must take so much out of you, a manager at the elite level, if you're losing games and stuff like that. So I wonder whether part of him's thinking, crikey, I wouldn't mind Todd just uh, getting rid of me because I'm sure he's got a nice contract with a nice payout sum in it. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, it just looks hopeless for Chelsea at the moment. Round up of the rest of the Prem results. So Fulham 5, West Ham nil. 10 goals in four days for Fulham. Before that, they scored three against Liverpool anyway. So they're absolutely flying at the moment. Shout out Raul Jimenez, who's back in the goals. Obviously not been the same player for three years, but he didn't have his mask on either. I saw, I don't, maybe he hadn't had it on for a while, but he didn't have his mask on yesterday. When he scores goals, he's got like a new headband. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw he had a headband on, but it didn't look like it would significantly defend him. But he he scored like bullet. I think it was a bullet header he scored in the week. He scored a lovely finish into the top corner and another one where he took around the keeper and back heeled it. Much more like the Raul Jimenez that we knew and loved and was one of my favourite strikers in the Premier League at Wolves before that nasty head accident up at um, the Emirates. So if he can carry on that form... I mean, Fulham, I mean, they're scintillating at the moment, aren't they? Like, they, like you just said, they've scored 13 goals in the last three Premier League games and um, into the top half, a team that I think people were a little bit worried about at the start of the season. Um, you look at them on paper now and you wonder why, because they're a team that have got a decent set of players and are achieving some good results now. Weird football club, though, Fulham, aren't they? You never really know what the kind of par is for them, but top half in the Premier League, they'll be more than delighted with that, I'm sure, the Cottagers. Yeah, they, they just go through spells like they are now and then we'll probably be sat on a January pod like, oh, is it is time up for the Fulham manager? They've not won in five. And you'll be like, hang on, what's happened there? But yeah, uh, do you remember that sort of Wolf period at Jimenez where he was scoring sort of 15 a season for those couple of seasons? We were we were like, as United fans, thinking, well, if there's a striker we need in the Prem at the time, I remember thinking I'd have Jimenez there. Shame what happened to him. But good to see him oh. goals. And also Marco Silva turned down Saudi, one of the only people to do it in the summer. Good to see good things coming to him now. Because um, you would have thought if he does want to continue a, a proper football management career in the Premier League or in Europe, he'll probably be in line for a big job soon because he's done an absolutely fantastic job at Fulham from start to finish. Yeah, good point. Dare I say it? No. Man United? No, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luton one Man City two. I think the big takeaway from that for uh, for football fans and FPL fans was Haaland not playing through injury. I can't make head nor tail of what Pep's saying about it. I'm reading stress fracture. Then he's coming out apparently and going, I've not said fracture, it's just stress on the bone. 
So I don't know what's happening with him. So be interested to see if he plays in Champs League in midweek because uh, there'll be a few decisions on FPL based on his availability. But Still important three points for them. Yeah, it is an important three points, but there's no way he's going to play in the week, surely. They're, they're top of the group already. Um, but I, I was thinking that game, obviously it, was a re- it felt like an FA Cup game. And and it was um, it reminds me basically like 10, 15 years ago we we look we look back at Sir Alex Ferguson's teams um with sort of rose tinted glasses and we think that they played like free flow and attacking football all the time and it was brilliant to watch etc cetera, etc cetera. but teams become champions winning games like they won where you just come off a really bad performance probably their worst in about five years under Pep Guardiola. And then you go to a tough ground like that where it's not easy, physical, all of the rest of it. And you just come away with a win no matter what. And they did that. And it was a good sign, basically, of City. Um, and I did notice again after the game, did you see the, the camera pan to Grealish and Pep Guardiola was there um, in his ear, having a pop at him, making sure that sort of demanding high standards just in that pep sort of really annoying way he does. But yeah, it was a good win and a very important three points, you're right. Indeed. Another team who got an important three points, Sheffield United beat Brentford 1-0. So nice early win there for Chris Wilder. And then a couple of draws, actually. Frustrating for all teams looking at it, actually. Wolves won, Forest won, Brighton won, Burnley won. I think all four teams there'd be a little bit frustrated with a draw there, especially because Burnley were winning relatively late at Brighton. Um, so, yeah, we'll move on to the championship. Lauro, I said to you on the preview pod uh, about Plymouth and being a bit of a win one, lose one. Could they potentially go and get something at Leicester? Looks like uh, they got played off the park in a 4-0 loss and Mavadidi scoring a brace for Leicester. Yeah, he's up there with signing of the season for me in the championship. He's been fantastic. I know we spoke about him before. He's had a, a big kind of tenure in the French league, so I couldn't believe he was English, but he, he did actually originate, I think, at Arsenal and had to spell at Southend. He's been fantastic for them. But look, they're playing Plymouth at home. Mavadidi scored two, and then the other two scorers, Patson Daka and Wilfred Ndidi. I mean, that says it all, really, doesn't it, in the championship? I do feel for Stephen Schumacher having to go to the King Power and play a team like that in a, in a league game. So, look, 4-0 Leicester against Plymouth. I don't think Plymouth fans will have any problem with just ticking that one off the hardest game of the season and Leicester march on, as they have been doing all season in the imperious style. And yeah, just, just a word... Oh, go on, Tom, oh, you go. I was just going to say a word on Ndidi. So, look, look, he, he pops up with a fourth to rub salt in the wounds for the Plymouth fans. Um, but this week, I've been posting quite a lot about him on Transfer News Live because his contract comes up in, in 2024 and he's been heavily linked with Barcelona. That's the sort of levels that they're dealing with. Patson Dakar, he scored as well, and that's his first start under Maresca. Do you know what I mean? He's been, he's been a not, complete non-event this season, but starts his first game, scores. There's just so much quality in that Leicester team. Um, and the new signings, that Mavadidi, like you just said, yeah, it's almost curtain. It does feel a little bit like curtains for the rest of the championship already. Yeah, indeed. And Laurie, slightly more trivial, but just a, uh, a nod of approval to some of the Plymouth fans you saw on Twitter on the train up to Leicester. They had it bang right, didn't they, with their setup on the train? 
Yeah, particularly because it was what I like to see is um, awareness of your surroundings. They knew it was December, it's festive season. They got a long trip up to Leicester. And what did they have? They had a cheese board, a, an assortment of crackers, um, a deck of Guinnesses, and I think a bottle of port. Yeah. Fair play to that bunch of Plymouth fans because that is how you travel to Leicester in a style on a fest- festive football fixture. Well done. Especially when they were on the 0630 from Plymouth as well. So. So aggressive, but so brilliant as well. So shout out to those boys. Um, Leicester, so there is midweek action in the championship as well, which is a nice touch. Uh, Leicester have Millwall at home on Wednesday, so probably be looking to continue uh, their form there with it. Tomo, we've uh, previewed the kind of X-Man United coach derby, Middlesbrough versus Ipswich. Uh, They just keep on rolling. We spoke about Kieran McKenna at length on the last pod and another important victory for him. Yeah, it's a good win. Probably to be expected. I had a look after the game and Borough were without 10 first-team players through injury or suspension or whatnot. So, And they've lost three of the last four games now. So definitely feeling the effects of having um, so little players available, I guess. But um, yeah, Connor Chaplin, eighth goal of the season. Got a really good assist for Amari Hutchinson to seal the win towards the end of the game. Um, yeah, McKenna's men, they keep marching on, mate. They keep marching on and keeping Leicester honest because they're right on their coattails. So potentially the championship sort of title, even if the the promoted sides or the promoted two seem to be um, wrapped up, sorry, Lauro, um, the title race is still on. <laughs> yeah, indeed. They go to uh, Watford away tomorrow as well. I will obviously come on to Watford um, and their game against Southampton, but essentially a tricky looking tie there for Ipswich, but they just keep on grinding out results. The side who is absolutely desperate for those two teams to start dropping some more points, Leeds are just doing all that they can. And Lauro, what was potentially looking a difficult fixture, Blackburn away, James and Somerville doing what they're doing quite a lot at the minute and scoring and another important win for Leeds. Yeah, well, you can rinse and repeat the thing I say about James, Somerville, Piro and Rutter every week. They score and assist each other. Um, quickly look at the stats in front of me now. Somerville, nine goals, six assists. Hero eight goals, one assist. James, seven goals, four assists. And I think Rutter is four goals, eight assists. So when you've got firepower like that, you know you're going to be in business. If it wasn't for the or just as Farker described it, we'd be up there with them. That is literally the only difference between us, Ipswich and Leicester. We've beaten both of those. We've been as good as both of those, but we do need them to slip up at some point. And we have still got over half the season to go. But to be fair to Leicester and even a lot more so Ipswich, Leeds are on 41 points from 20 games. That's above two points a game. If you get two points a game, you generally win a league and we're seven points off second. That's how good those two have been. And I just think, obviously, far more props are deserved to Ipswich, who are on at the moment to do the back-to-back, which is a very rarely trodden path. I think only maybe like Norwich and Southampton have done it before. So um, can't speak highly enough of, of Ipswich for keeping up with that pace. But now we're going into that festive period where everyone has like eight games in three weeks or whatever. If you can come out the other side of that, you, you, you're banging business. So still lots of little sections and um, side, sidebar of the seasons to go, but very good from Ipswich and uh, very good from Leeds. Can't say anything bad about Leeds other than that start we had, which we knew was going to happen. Let's just hope that another team can go for a sticky uh, patch and we can capitalise. Just a quick shout out as well to um, to people. If, if you haven't seen 
Leeds' second goal. Go and watch it. 17-year-old Archie Gray. Um, unbelievable assist. Really underrated assist, I think, considering he's only 17. Um, and he's been linked with a 40, 50 million pound move to Liverpool, um, which shows the talent that he's got at that age, playing in the lead side, doing so well in the championship. So, yeah, fair play to him. Yeah, well, he's a good player, I'd agree. I think we have spoken about his links before and the big price tag that's been put on him. But just a weird one. I don't know if I've said this before. Luke Aylin can't get in our squad at the moment. And Daniel Farker has been asked about it. And he's just said, look, I, like, I know it's a bit awkward, but I've got to be honest, he just isn't one of our best 21 players or however many you have in a squad at the moment. And Archie Gray is starting at right back. And bearing in mind, he's a central midfielder. So that's how good he is. If he's keeping out a season pro like Luke Aylin, who's had promotion after promotion after promotion in his career, and he's just spent the last three years in the Premier League starting every game for Leeds. Um, yeah, just to add praise onto young Archie Gray's shoulders, like Teague was just said. But again, fourth generational Leeds player, and great to see him in the assists. And while everyone else is watching Champs League tomorrow night, then Laura, you'll be watching Sunderland away? I will. And it just see why do Leicester get to play Millwall at home every week? And then we've got to go. We're always away at like a really tricky side. One thing I'll say about Sunderland whilst we're on them is the Loro Carney derby. We've got a, um, a small ginger man who's friends of us that's a big Macum, And he'll be watching alongside me. Looking at the table, they're sixth. They had a brilliant win at the weekend and they beat West Brom, who haven't lost in a long time. They're sixth in the league. How unfair on Tony Mowbray. If he deserves to lose his job for what, the job that he's done at Sunderland, there's 10 to 15 other managers that should lose their jobs as well. I just feel like there's some clubs out there at the moment that have got these older school type managers like Mowbray that are just waiting for an excuse to sack them so that they can bring in someone trendier. Not based on the direction of the club, but just based on you know, wanting to be associated with modern football a bit more. There is absolutely no way Tony Mowbray, who got to the playoffs last season and has got them in the playoffs again at the moment this season, should have lost his job for what he's done, in my opinion. And he's brought through loads of really brilliant young players like Jack Clark and Joe Bellingham and people like that. Yeah, and just on that, they obviously beat West Brom uh, 2-1 at the weekend. Big result for them. I was going to actually... Uh, mention about whether there's any news on on a new manager for them um, and who, who's going to get that job. But I've had a quick look and there doesn't seem to be anything concrete at the moment. Um, Tomo, did you see the offside decision in that? I know we spoke before about we don't want VAR in the championship, even if it goes against you sometimes. But that offside decision against Joe Bellingham is is one of the stranger ones I've seen in quite a while. Yeah, it was a bad decision. Um, but I think if you asked every single championship fan um, whether they would take a mistake like that over having VAR in every game, they would say, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, It was a shocker. But look, linos can make mistakes. And actually, when we bring in that semi-automated offside that they're going to bring in, um, I actually think the VAR won't, like, it won't be an issue with the offside um, law because that will just be an automatic decision it won't take ages, drawing the lines, etc. Um, but in the championship, I, like I just said, yeah, I, I don't think any fans in the championship would would take VAR just to get a decision like that correct. Um, I think we've said it before. It almost feels better, doesn't it, having a chat after the game where it's like, oh, that one went against us today, but that's football rather yeah. than... It's you're a breath of fresh air. 
against you and then talking about the technology and the refs and all of that so but also just quickly it is easy to talk about that if you're a Sunderland fan easy to be a little bit less pissed off about it when you come away with a win do you know what I mean if they've yeah. drawn it or, or on the wrong side of the result then you could probably see the interim manager I think he said after the game that he would enjoy the result with a couple of beers on Saturday night well he probably wouldn't have said that if they didn't win because of that offside decision yeah it's a bit of a easier pill to swallow when you've got all three in that. Uh, and then Tomo, finally, um, Watford won, Southampton won. So in regards to the actual title race and the, the automatic playoffs and playoff position, sorry, for the championship, uh, a bit of a blow for Russell Martin in Southampton with a, that late, late equaliser for Watford. But uh, as I touched on in the intro, the, uh, the main thing for them is they retain the PP Cup. So a crumb of comfort for Russell. Yeah, but Gavin Bazuno. I'm starting to think he's got, he doesn't want to hold the cup because he's thrown that one in, in what was it, the 96th minute? They've nearly yeah. gone to Watford, the in, one of the informed teams in the championship and come away with a great result. Um, Adam, we talk about Leeds' front front players. Well, I think on um, Southampton's goal, it was Fraser who crossed the ball, Adam Armstrong who um, cushioned it down brilliantly for Che Adams and Che Adams scores. And he, and that's Che Adams' first goal since August. And he was, I think he was linked with a £12.5 million move to Sheffield United before, I think it was Sheffield United, before the, the window shut. So they've got an embarrassment of riches going forward as well. But um, yeah, Bazuno, not not a great moment for the, for the keeper. Yeah, but as I say, retains the cup and they go away to Coventry on Wednesday, which won't be an easy fixture, but they're starting to get close to a little 10-game uh, streak there with the cup, Southampton. So I think for the uh, interest of the cup, it might be nice if they slipped up soon. Um, bit of a another managerial uh, dismissal in the championship. Uh, Lauro Alex Neal sacked at Stoke. Um, Stoker aside to me who seemed to lose every week um, so I'm surprised he's lasted as long as he has to be honest but uh, yeah just a bit of a word on him and, and the position Stoker in Yeah he, I think he's done a terrible job because they, they are a team that have spent a lot of money in the championship and they've just bought in whoever they he wanted to be honest with you um, and he's had a fair amount of time now there he actually he was at Sunderland and randomly just to, I you know I, I for me Sunderland's a better job than Stoke but I think Sunderland had him on like a year-to-year -year contract and he decided to stick his V's up and go down to the Britannia and um, try and sort them out. And he's had some good managerial jobs, Alex Neal. He was fantastic at Norwich, getting them promoted. He did really well at Preston as well, albeit never actually made it into the Premier League. Um, and then he, he obviously helped Sunderland into League One off the back of a lot of good work from Lee Johnson. But at Stoke, he's been terrible. And I think deservedly got the sack what did make me laugh was them stoke coming out today or people in and around stoke and naming graham potter as their first choice to be their next manager well yeah he wouldn't he be everyone's in the championship you know graham potter's just sitting on he, he signed a six-year deal didn't he at chelsea yeah. and i think as long as he doesn't take another job he's just carrying on getting paid because he's been offered he's been offered the sweden job um he's been offered quite a few jobs to be fair so yeah i can't see I can't see him. And if he is going to, if he is going to cut short that money train he's got coming in, it's not going to be for Stoke, is it? It's going to be for a big job somewhere or a much bigger job. Stoke are obviously trying to manifest like a tweet, which is like Potter is a Potter, but it's just not happening, is it? So just <laughs> pop it. 
I think John Eustace is the favourite there. And um, his stock is just growing every week with Birmingham's demise, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, because another terrible weekend for uh, for Rooney and he's going to get a decent job, Eustace, and they say his stock is going up. Just to come back quickly to the um, Sunderland new manager, I just had a quick look um, while we were discussing Watford-Southampton there and a manager who's getting shortened in now is Schumacher at Plymouth. Yeah. Uh, been shortened into about three to one, latest I've seen, so from 12 to one. So potentially, uh, as you say, Lauro, this mould of a young progressive positive manager might be the fit that that um Sunderland go for well, so well we spoke last week about McKenna and whether he should take the job if he was linked with Sunderland the answer was no I, I would flip that on its head for Stephen Schumacher I think that Plymouth are sort of they're not gonna I can't imagine Plymouth ever having the means to go and play in the Premier League unless they have like a Luton-esque season which is obviously very difficult and Stephen Schumacher a young manager I think he's uh, a Liverpudlian so obviously geographically it would work to be further north and a very big football club that I think would be extremely difficult to turn down if you're somewhere like Plymouth where you possibly have taken them as far as you can go so if they offer Steven Schumacher the job I think he would take it and I think the noises coming out of Plymouth and their fans on Twitter and stuff is that the, they think he's going to go basically and take the director of football with him so eyes out for that one but three to one that's actually quite wide if you know, even if his favourite three to one is still not a done deal, is it? So we'll wait and see. Yeah, and actually looking at Plymouth, what, what I, I'd regard them as making a fairly positive start to life in the championship, but with some big results, they're three points off the drop uh, with QPR, yeah. Stoke, Huddersfield, Millwall ahead of them. So yeah, maybe if Schumacher does get an opportunity to go, you know, can't can't lie, Sunderland's a massive club with a massive fan base and stadium. He would uh, he would jump at that. And you've got to go when your stock's high, haven't you? If Plymouth yeah. continue to kind of, you know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise you to see Plymouth in the relegation zone. But if then suddenly they sack him, it, then he's looking at League One, isn't he? Rather than a massive championship club. So, yeah, I think we're agreed. If Sunderland come in for Stephen Schumacher, he would rightly go. Indeed. What about if he, if Stoke came in for him, Lauro? Do you think like all clubs like of the championship size are just bigger than Plymouth now? Or do you think sometimes you've got to take the situation into it as well? Like, why would you want to be Stoke manager type thing? No, that's a financial yeah, no that's a financial decision. Sorry, I know you asked Lauro that question, but surely that's a financial decision. At that level, he's probably yeah. not I don't know how much he's on at Plymouth, but probably what, five hundred grand a year, something like that. And it, then he'll jump to like a mil and a half a year, probably at Stoke or something ridiculous. So surely you yeah. take that. I agree. Stoke, nowhere near, for me, nowhere near as appetising a job as Sunderland, who I think are a club on a different trajectory and just a much more sort of significant establishment in English football, in my opinion. But yeah, I agree. I think he'd go to Stoke as well. I think that would be closer to home and obviously better for the bank account too. Yeah, indeed. All right, boys, we move on to League One and... Um... Monday Night Football, as we touched on on uh, Thursday's pod, Portsmouth versus Bolton. Portsmouth only won, lost one league game all season. Bolton have won 10 out of their last 11 in all fixtures. So, um, tasty game there tonight for anyone who wants a bit of a football fix. But the results uh, from the weekend, Lauro, Peterborough 3, Oxford 0. Uh, we spoke a little bit about their new manager and just the kind of the way that it looks like he started. They've now not won in three League One games, so a bit of a worry there for Oxford. 
Yeah, and I, I just feel like and this is still very, very early days, but they've already gone from second to sixth. Do you know what I mean? Don't think he's won a game yet. Just feels like um, took an, a really overperforming team at the wrong time, and the only way he was down unless you're going to win the league. And uh, Peterborough, very difficult place to go. From what I hear in, in League One, I think a lot of the teams in League One um, see them as one of, if not the best team in the league. Um, we've obviously a manager that knows that club inside out there in Ferguson with some really good players. So that was, you can't base it on the Peterborough result, but that is the latest in a, a small line now with results that have gone against Des Buckingham and Oxford. And if you couple that with my personal take on the way that he sort of communicates with his players and things like that, I don't think it's bodes very well. Having said that, you'd have thought he'll get a bit of time. So let's see where they are in another month or two. But sticky start, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't look good. Aside that uh, on the flip side in great form, Tomo, uh, Stevenage, uh, they are now unbeaten in two months, actually, and up into uh, third in the table, level on points for Bolton, albeit Portsmouth Bolton got a couple of games in hand. But a, uh, a side there that are doing well under Steve Evans. Yeah, Steve Evans, absolute character. I saw it after the game. He um he sort of went up to the away fans and jeered jeered them all up and he just he is a he is a big character to be fair um not one I particularly like or or un, some of those under the cosh stories that you listen about him makes me think he's a bit of a um uh, yeah I don't want to slag him off too much because obviously he's doing a great job at Stevenage but um. But yeah, and then I saw on on Twitter as well that um, the Stevenage fans got absolutely slated because they didn't take many fans up to Burton. Which yeah, I saw that. Which is like, come on, yeah. But yeah, look, they're in a great run of form. Um, I think Hemmings scored against Burton, which is his former club. Um, just a really good win, to be honest. But and and I think after the game, the Burton manager um, left, didn't he? So quite yes. quite quite a significant you know, result for them. Yeah, Dino Maramia relieved of his duties, I think, at, at Burton after, which was ironic because he's a bit of a club legend at Stevenage. I think he was there throughout a little bit of a successful period for them back in the um, 2000s. But yeah, another managerial vacancy in League One. And I'm not sure where Burton are on the table, but I've got in my head that they're not doing overly well. Um, no, they're, ju they're just yeah. outside the relegation. Yeah, they're 19th, so they're one of the clubs that your likes of Fleetwood and your Carlisles are going to be looking at and thinking we can reel in. So a massive decision now for the Burton board to uh, as to who they get next. Well, I know Nigel Clough's doing a really good job at Mansfield, but I'm sure he'll take up his 15th stint at Burton. I swear he's always mm. at Burton. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, yeah I mean... Well, when I think back to Yeovil, the year that we won Lee, uh, the conference in 2003, Nigel Clough was their manager then. So I'm surprised at that level of knowledge from UT Gale, but you are right. He has been in and out of Burton for a long time. Or your man who was married to Karen Brady. He was there for a bit, wasn't he? Paul Pesky Salido, is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's slightly more niche. Um, I've not <laughs> seen Paul in and around the football circles any time recently, but that would be an interesting appointment if Pesky Shalido gets installed at um, the Pirelli Stadium. I don't know. I always pictured him at Burton. He might have no links to there at all, but I have to picture him at Burton. Uh, just back to that game. I um, said about Kane Hemmings um, scoring. Tomo, he did, and so did Jamie Reid as well, who's now got 13 goals uh, so far this season in 20 games. So he's absolutely flying as our Stevenage. 
And we, well, we've named Checkham every week, but for good reason now. They've got 15 points from 15. Derby winning 3-0 away at Leighton Orient. Uh, they're into fifth and they've got games in hand as well. So I actually think that Derby are in such good form now and their players are starting to obviously gel and click that they're only three points off the automatics now. And it might be that they end up, if Bolton or Portsmouth uh, lose a bit of huff and puff, then Derby might be a side that just come up through and actually go on and win that league or go up automatically. Yeah. And what was the advice that this pod gave the Derby board? Yeah, keep it. You've got yeah. a good manager, fucking yeah. stick with him. Yeah, well, that, well they're, they're an example, or I think they're an example of like how momentum's a big, um, can shift so quickly in those um, lower leagues. And they've just won five on the, on the spin in about two weeks. And it's like all's rosy yeah. again. And um, they've got that, that former Cardiff striker, Mendes Lang, who he scored and assisted again. Um, and so he scored five and got six assists this season. He seems to sort of, being a, a great run of form basically is clicking and it's just a good result for them. And like you say, three, three points off the automatics or albeit Bolton play tonight against Portsmouth. Um, but either way, I guess either, either result tonight would sort of be deemed as a positive for Derby because someone's got drop points, hopefully both of them. So yeah, up the wall. They just need to be, they just need to be in it Derby because once you get to the business end of the season, they've got, some really well-seasoned pros in there, like Connor Hurahain, who's been in and around promotions from League One um, and the Championship and played lots of Premier League football. Um, James Collins as well, who's... I mean, I can't believe he's still playing. He's been around for about 40 years, and I think he's still in his 20s. So they've got some really good you know, pros there, stalwarts that will help them. So getting to within that touching distance of the automatic places is really good. So up the Paul Warren, and also congratulations, Murph, for remembering Paul Pesky-Shalido's only ever managerial um, appointment, which was at Burton in 2009. So, was it? I reckon that's some old football football manager-like memory unlocked there, because, yeah, I definitely had pictured him uh, at Burton. And Louis Sibley scored as well for Derby, whose name I haven't heard much, but he was kind of linked with being a future star, when he future Prem player when he was really young. So um an interesting fact for you, me and him caught the same bus to Siam Park in Tenerife one he, year. He is still I'm only twenty two, by the you... way. What's that? He's still only twenty two. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. I'm just at like eighteen, nineteen, he was linked with a, a Prem move. So there was yeah. a time there was a time when Derby couldn't sign anyone and they were playing the kids and Sibley was in from a young age, wasn't he? And sort of Probably since then, since they've been able to bring in some proper players, he's been in and out of the side a little bit more, but still probably a, a good player in League One, you'd imagine. And I was just about to say, I seem to remember you guys hooking up in Tenerife, Murph. So good to see Louis doing well. Yeah, well done, Louis. Right, boys, we will move on to League Two. And actually, there were quite a few postponements at the weekend. So there was an opportunity for a few sides to uh, gain a bit of traction on, on the sides around them at the top. And None of them actually took that opportunity. So Stockport drew one all with Morecambe. They seem to just, I know Yeovil got a victory against uh, Bath midweek, but seems to just be having a similar run of form uh, at the minute with Yeovil, just like not not churning out the wins as they, they were uh, at one stage. So a little bit of a blip there for Stockport. Crew, who are right up there as well, they lost 2-1 away at Grimsby uh, and Notts County, they lost um, 2-1 at home to Warsaw as well. So, I think with Wrexham and Mansfield's games being postponed, none of those teams took the opportunity there to um, to really take drive home a bit of advantage and gain a few points on it. 
A side that did do well, though, Tomo, Wimbledon, they beat Swindon 4-0. Yeah, great result. And um, our boy Al, Al Hamadi scored his 12th and 13th goal of the season. Um, He's he gone, looks, isn't he? He looks like a really good player. And then um, Armani Little scored an absolute worldie. I think it was the first, wasn't it? And, um, I mean, even Giorgio would be proud of that one. <laughs> 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 Have you got that written down? <laughs> Where did that come from? Even Georgia would be glad of that one. Just on uh, Al Hamadi, he'll be gone in January. He he's sticking out like a sore thumb, isn't he? In League Two at the moment, like physically, goal scoring wise, um, just every single week he seems to score a brace. So I think that'll be uh, a championship move in January. Yeah, he's. Yeah, he is literally a brace every game looking at it. He's got six in his last four free braces. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, great result for them. I love that Armani one, Tomo. I'd have gone Stuart, but I uh, would have been proud of that one. But horses for courses. Yeah, no, shout out, to, shout out to the commentator on the game who um, delivered that line. It didn't. didn't oh, right. Okay. Uh... Uh, Tomo, you could have had that. I'll take Stuart anyway. Right. Uh, Lauro. We will go to Yeovil. Yeovil, two all uh, at Dartford. Uh, an extra point clear with teams in the FA Trophy uh, pulled away. But um, sounds like in the first half, they absolutely battered Dartford and should have been out of sight. Yeah, exactly that. One of those games where you should be 7-1 up at half time, and then you go into the break and you know that the other team have got a bit of a um, second wind because they've been given an extra life. And we ended up having to equalise from going 2-1 down. Um, thankfully, we had the quality to do it in Jordan Young, who picked up his ninth league goal of the season. But, you know, quite a big debate between Yeovil fans as to whether that was two points dropped or one point gained. And I'll just to confirm to everyone that didn't realise it's factually one point gained. We were on 45 points and now we're on 46. You take the points away from home, particularly when you've got such a lead at the top. And we're back at Hewish Park. By the way, we have been through a sticky run of form lately, but we haven't played at home in five weeks. On Saturday, I think it'll be five weeks. Well, the Farnborough game was either five and a bit weeks or four and a bit weeks ago. So back at home against Hampton and Richmond on um, Saturday, we'll preview it on Thursday, but that's first three third. So big game coming up and I'm, I'm hoping we can extend our run. But we're seven points clear at the top of the National League South. I'd have bit your arm off for that mid-December if you offered it me to start the season. Yeah, indeed. And um, we'll obviously preview their their return to Hewish Park on the Thursday episode. Boys, that's all we got time for. We will be back on Thursday where we will look at all of the championship results, all of the Champs League results for the uh, English sides. And we will preview the weekend action. But pleasure as always. Cheers, chaps. Nice one, boys. Take care. One, two, three.